0: Hi folks, Conversations Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this one. Guys, we get to hear from Steve Nicholson, who, uh, of course, is a, an incredibly formational leader in the history of our movement, Vineyard USA. Uh, he oversaw um, vineyard church planting for 25 years. He's kind of my coach, slash hero, slash mentor guy. Um, and he is sort of unofficially uh, the Vineyard Movement's historian. When people want to know what happened, they call Steve, and uh, we just had Josh and I an incredible conversation with Steve Nicholson talking about um, the unique way in which God has placed the Vineyard historically in the larger sweep of church history. And I thought I knew all the things. And I sat and talked in this conversation and learned all sorts of things from Steve Nicholson. Uh, So here it is, guys. Steve Nicholson. okay so uh steve seriously thanks so much for um giving us some of your time and sharing some of your expertise you're a little bit of a historian and the vineyard uh has looked to you increasingly to be a bit of a a historian for us but i was i was hoping you would go back tell us a little bit about your childhood and some of your church background and then then we'll then we'll be talking about the ag and then we'll be ready to talk about azusa street but tell us a little bit of your background So, uh, I grew up as a PK, a pastor's kid. My father
1: was a pastor in the Assemblies of God Church. Mm -hmm. And he met my mother at an Assemblies of God Bible College in Texas. And her father was also in the Assemblies of God. Oh, wow. And he was also pastoring. All of them were church planters. Really? My parents planted a church in New Mexico and then another one in Colorado before they took over a church in Montana, which is where I mostly grew up. Mm. But my grandfather, on my mom's side, planted a number of churches and then he did basically itinerant ministry for the Mm. last part of his life. Uh, So, you know, we were all, it was a family of uh, believers. And interestingly, both my mom's family and my dad's family they're big families you know Mm -hmm. my dad had eight siblings and my mom had like six and (laughs) they were not christians and then they all got converted Mm. at the assemblies of god churches Uh. pouring of the spirit and like all the relatives that i knew were all believers all Pentecostal believers wow when we got together for family reunions, it was more like a camp meeting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so then, like, your spiritual roots go directly to Azusa Street almost, and to the Pentecostal. Almost, like, almost, you, it just traces right back there
1: Almost. for multiple generations. Yeah.
0: All those churches and church plants, is that why you were so determined not to Ministry and be a pastor yeah, like as everybody a kid else. You know, yeah. I,
1: I, you know uh, it was a small church in a small town, mm. and uh, uh, as a kid growing up, I was just more aware of what we didn't have and what the costs of this were yeah. and what the benefits were. So, I, mm-hmm. of course, like a lot of kids, I will never be a pastor. Right. But of course, that didn't, that's not how it went.
0: <laughs> just, yeah, so, same with Josh over here. PK determined not to not to do it. I'm still not mm-hmm. one. Yeah, he, we have to make him call himself a pastor. was he, yeah, he just to, denial yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a missionary. I was like, sure. <laughs> you are. You call it what you will. God's getting what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, along the way, you've sort of. Obviously, you've traced some of those roots back to Azusa Street. Yeah. Can, you, can you give us, like, a, uh, honestly, like, like we've never heard of it before, just a summary. like yeah. Tell us the story of Azusa Street. How so, they got going.
1: The thing is that in the last part of the 1800s, so from, like, say, after the Civil War to 1900 or so, there was a new movement coming out of Methodism called the Holiness Movement. Mm. And they were trying to overcome what they perceived to be a kind of an apathetic you know status quo yeah. kind of spirituality mm-hmm. and so they were
0: nominalism
1: kind of a nominalistic mm-hmm. thing they were trying to fight against and so they started sort of a separate movement out of Methodism called, the, which was generally called the Holiness Movement and there were a bunch of denominations that were part of it mm-hmm. Uh, some that you might, might recognize today, Nazarenes, were mm-hmm. part of that movement. Mm-hmm. Salvation Army was part of that yeah. movement. Um, there are a bunch of other denominations that were part of that
0: thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, we're going to take this seriously. They
1: were going to yeah. really take it seriously. And they came to believe that there was actually a second work of the Holy Spirit that Mm. needed to happen to help people Mm -hmm. take it seriously. And they called it baptism in the Spirit Mm -hmm. using biblical language. But what they expected would happen was that God would make a change in your heart that would cause you to live a more holy life, a more Mm. serious life, a more committed life. Thus the name holiness movement.
0: Yeah. but so they, they had, weren't they weren't necessarily looking for what we would now call Pentecostal signs and wonders or anything like that they were no, for, no they're not they
1: weren't looking uh-huh. for signs and wonders but they were looking for in essence better discipleship sure and of people who didn't look like everybody else and they did tend to kind of drift a little over into legalism trying to not be like everybody else, they started having rules about, you know, we don't go to dances and we don't smoke and we don't drink and, you know, of course Methodism was already tilted that direction anyway so as they came up to the other thing about that movement is it was mostly down and outers Mm -hmm. and lower class people that were attracted to it Mm -hmm. you know, they were almost like reacting to sort of The higher status, muckety muck Mm. people that were coming to dominate Methodism at that Mm -hmm. point in time. You know, it had become respectable to be a Methodist. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And so these are the people who are looking for something
2: better than being respectable. Uh I once heard it (laughs) said that that Methodists are Baptists that can read. <laughs> <laughs> Something like
1: that. <laughs> That's just a good read, yeah. So it, it, it just helps to kind of understand the roots. As they came up mm-hmm. to the turn of the century, 1900, okay, They there was a widespread expectation something's going to happen at mm-hmm. the new century. Mm-hmm. Like uh, all across, including, like, not just in the United States, but other countries as well. Wide expectation. Something's about to happen. Wow. And nobody knew what exactly, but they felt like something's going to happen.
0: Yeah. I don't want to pull you way off track, but there's, like, some historical precedent for that, right? Where people have a growing sense of expectation. They're they're often right. The kingdom drawing near. The kingdom drawing near. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like
1: the, the Lord is on the move and people sense something. Mm. They, might, they might not have words for it mm-hmm. exactly, but they sense something. And so they're... This was going on, widespread, and people were looking,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, there was, in the middle of nowhere, and of course this is typical, Topeka, Kansas, mm-hmm. which is about as close to the middle of North America as it's <laughs> possible right. to get. Uh-huh. It's kind of the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Not a big place, not an influential place, not a rich place. Mm-hmm. There's a guy named Charles Parham, a white guy. Yeah. Who's in the holiness movement, who the more he looks into this and thinks about this, starts Mm -hmm. thinking, no, the baptism of the Spirit should bring signs and wonders with it. Yeah. And in particular, the initial sign of baptism of the Spirit would be speaking in tongues. Yeah, sounds like he read Acts. Well, well, (laughs) he was obviously reading Acts a lot, and that's what he thought, and so that became his thing. Sure so he, st- he had a little Bible school going a little leadership training school that he had going and he started teaching this in his school and so on the stroke of midnight hmm. at the beginning of the new century where it was going to flip into the new century yeah. a woman in that school named Agnes Osmond spoke in tongues Hmm. and became the first Pentecostal. Wow. And it's just interesting to me, once again, the women
0: are always there first. (laughs) Yes, they were there first. (laughs) What I was thinking about is um, they were running around with great expectation for the next great thing, and then the next century came along, and we were worried about Y2K and all the computers (laughs) wiping everything out. That's unfortunate. Actually, there was a lot going on at the turn of the century. Yeah, uh, It could have been different, but we we got hoodwinked. So, stroke of midnight, that's incredible. Stroke of midnight, she
1: starts speaking in tongues. And so then over the next, you know, little while, this started happening with more of the students in the school. They started having an experience with the Holy Spirit, and they started, you know, this new language of prayer, speaking in tongues. Mm. And it was electric, Mm. because it hadn't happened before. This is new, we didn't know anybody who did it. So, you know, the the truth is... if you look back, there were people that we would now call saints or mystics or whatnot mm-hmm. who had experienced a lot of these things previously in history, but a lot of them were discounted because it was within the confines of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm.
0: So. But was, wasn't there a fair bit of that in early Methodism? There was. In the awakenings, they had uh-huh. a lot of that, but. But that kind of got
1: swept under the rug a little bit, or they just moved away from One it? One way, if you want to be respectable, you have to revise your history. <laughs> <laughs> a loaded statement.
0: <laughs> Let's not discuss all the things you could have meant by that. <laughs> we don't have the time.
1: <laughs> That's great. Let's just say, people have been revising history since the ancient Egyptians. Indeed. <laughs> so you have to revise your history. So, anyway, So a couple go forward a year or two, you know this is spreading through holiness circles. Hey, there's something going on up there in Topeka, Kansas. Mm -hmm. So there's a one-eyed black man who is uh, one of the holiness preachers in Texas. I think he was living in Texas named William Seymour, Mm -hmm. and he hears about this and it pricks something in him, and he wants to go up to Topeka, Kansas, Mm -hmm. to be a part of it. So he goes up to Topeka, Kansas. Because he wants to get in on this thing. Well, he gets up there. Turns out Charles Parham is a racist and won't let yes. him in the school. Yes. Refuses to let him in the room. Yeah. But he says, You can sit outside and we'll open the windows and you
0: can listen in. Isn't that incredible? From outside. from outside. You can sit outside, we won't let you in the room. You and can, this is a room where the Holy Spirit is moving and it's real. And it's real. And Charles Parham is being used by God while being an actively racist person. Yeah. All sorts
2: of beautiful horrible tension in that, right? Well, it sounds it sounds very it sounds very similar to disciples. I mean, you know, it sounds very similar to what we see in the New Testament. It's like you know, these these completely flawed people that God turned the world upside down with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and the amazing thing to me is that
1: Charles is that William Seymour did it. Mm. Like he didn't like get offended and stomp off. Like he wanted God so bad. Mm. He wanted what God was doing so bad that he just endured Mm. the prejudice and the hatred Mm. and sat outside and Mm. listened. Wow. And of course, then of course you know what happens when you humble yourself, what does God do? Indeed. <laughs> yeah. So, Charles uh, William Seymour gets filled with the Spirit. He starts speaking in tongues and starts telling his friends. Hmm. And then there's some black holiness churches out in the Los Angeles area ask him to come. Come tell us about what's going on. So he goes out there to visit his friends in Los Angeles. And he gets out there and starts preaching and he preaches at a couple of the holiness churches and some of them liked what he had to say and some of them didn't Mm -hmm. like what he had to say and he ends up in this prayer they have a prayer meeting uh, in this house on Bonnie Bray Street in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and the Holy Spirit falls in a major way on Mm -hmm. this particular prayer meeting
3: Mm -hmm.
1: where a whole bunch of people get empowered by the Spirit all at once Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they're speaking in tongues and praising God and all this stuff. And the thing is, you're talking, it's like 1904. Hmm. So there's no air conditioning. Mm -mm. So the windows, everybody's got the windows open. Yeah, and it's packed. And and it's packed. And soon there's a crowd in the street gathering to find out, like, what's going on down the street? Something's happened down there. So they move out onto the porch. Of the house and start preaching from the porch.
2: And it just sounds so similar to Peter addressing the crowd after this, you know, crazy. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 except this is African Americans, right? This mm-hmm. is almost all African Americans. Yeah. That's so fascinating.
1: Mm-hmm. So they're out on the porch and there's this crowd of people coming, and people start coming, things start happening. It's not just people getting filled with the Spirit and. Speaking in tongues, but people getting healed and people getting delivered and mm. you know, receiving different things start really kicking up. That prayer meeting essentially never stopped for the next three years. Wow. People would come and go, but it would go day and night, all mm. night, all day, mm. for the next three years. And it wasn't very long, the porch collapsed. Of the
0: house, <laughs> I didn't know that.
1: <laughs> and so, and you know, it was getting to be a problem in the neighborhood.
0: How <laughs> bet yeah, the neighbors
1: are frustrated is the, because it was going all the time, uh-huh. right? Of course. So, no, guys it was getting quiet. to be a problem in the neighborhood. So they moved. They found this old stable down on Azusa Street hmm. and moved down there and started. and move the prayer meeting over to
0: Azusa Street that had already been gone. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a nice place either. The stable that you mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah. Once again... Still hot. Still
1: packed. Still packed. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, lots of biblical precedents for
0: God working in stables. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You don't don't have to work hard to find the parallels here with Scripture, for sure. Uh, Yeah. So... Um, you
1: know, this is growing and it's primarily, you have to realize, it's primary among these holiness people, you know, mostly African-American, a few white people mixed in, but not too many. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, it was very uh, open. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, William Seymour, the guy who was the instigator of this, you know, would often be in the prayer meeting with a with his head in a box or a bag over his head mm. so people wouldn't focus on him. Wow. Really? He, he didn't want people to be focused on him. Wow. You know, he didn't want to be like...
0: That reminds me of a, a lot of John Wimber stories where yeah. he didn't want that and he'd give you the microphone and despair. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> sort of like, don't...
1: When people start looking after a person, they forget mm. about God. Mm. And so... He didn't want them to look at him. So, somehow or other, William Randolph Hearst,
0: who was mm. really, Can really I just say one thing before you talk about William Randolph Hearst. Okay. It just sounds like, and I think you referenced to it, you, you referenced it, I'm just drawing it out again, which is Charles Parham, the the white racist in Kansas, he actually he had the knowledge, he had the revelation but he didn't have the humility. And it's almost as if the humility was this radical force multiplier that took the lid off of the whole thing. And now instead of someone who's looking down on other people and making them stay outside, we've got a a charismatic leader who's putting his head in a box or in a bag, trying to make sure it's not about him. That's That's right. Remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is such a lesson in that. Yeah. It's just
1: God, you know, just. Think think where would we would be today if all of our great leaders had been like that. you would be a lot further down the road. We'd be a lot further down the road. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like your description force multiplier. Mm-hmm. You know. So, Parham actually is relegated to the dustbin of history. No, yes. He never does anything again. Mm. Like it's it, it's it never becomes about him. Mm. He becomes the guy that's left behind. Yeah. And it's all William Seymour. Mm. <laughs> so, anyway, William Randolph Hearst, who's you know, if you've uh, ever uh, seen the movie, uh, uh, great uh, no, the one about the rosebud. Uh, oh gosh, what's that? Oh, it's an old movie, but uh, never mind. <laughs> William Randolph Hearst, big newspaper man in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. super rich. Mm. He hears about this mm. somehow. He hears about this thing going over, you know, in the bad part of town, and uh, decides to push it to publicize it, mm-hmm. almost in a mocking, nationally, way. right,
0: or like through through national papers. Or well, local? through the big California papers, Got teams, the LA mm-hmm. Times,
1: San Francisco Chronicle. You know, I see. You know, it yeah. would have been big California papers, but from there it would go everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So he's almost like mocking it. you know, can you believe what these people are doing? And Mm. he starts publicizing it. But you know what? The next best thing to good publicity is bad publicity. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And pretty soon all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, white, Asian, Latino, you name it, wherever in the world they're from, and it's Los Angeles, so people are starting to gather there from all over the world, all start going over, check this thing out, over at Azusa Street. Mm. And it just explodes. Mm. It just absolutely explodes. It, it spreads. And the thing is, as the word got out, people started making pilgrimage
3: mm.
1: to Azusa Street. So people like in Chicago would hear about what's going on in Azusa Street and they'd like get on the train and they'd head out to Los Angeles mm-hmm. and they'd go to Azusa Street and hang out there for a while and kind of get filled up and then they'd come back to Chicago and start a prayer meeting in Chicago.
0: Yeah, all well, these new little spot fires. So then
1: you get all these fires going on
0: mm-hmm. all over, not just the country, but the whole rest of the world people started coming from the whole world it's interesting to me that 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 process sort of self-selects for william j seymour types people who are so hungry and so humble that they're gonna go get it they want it that badly they're that open to it and they're humble enough to go hear it and receive it from somebody else to be able to say they have or know something that i lack and so the people who have that particular kind of fire are the ones who go and get it and then spread it. And, yeah. yeah, and the interesting thing is when they get there, it's
1: open to everybody. Mm. Like, if you feel moved by the Spirit, you can stand up and give a prophetic word or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter whether you're a woman or whether you're, or what race you're from or, where, or where, what background you are. Mm. It's all wide open
0: which is totally different from what people were rebelling against in Methodism where it was getting a little too buttoned up yep yeah. yeah and people were surprised
1: so they actually commented about how the color wall mm-hmm. the, the, the you know the wall of color was the, the the barriers mm-hmm. w- seem to be erased mm. as at Azusa street like it's sort of like it's the, it was the only you have to remember this is right in the middle of the height of the kkk in america <laughs>
0: yes okay like uh-huh. this
1: is at the height of legalized segregation in mm-hmm. america it's sort of like um, there was no other place in our society where people from those Different kinds of backgrounds and even different classes would ever, like, rub shoulders with each other, apart from mm. master-servant kind of situations. Yeah. And here it was completely everybody on the same playing field.
0: Yeah. And it's, again, I, I, we are really familiar with this, but just to point out, it's so Acts chapter 2. They, they walk out, and there they are, thousands, all the nations represented there. Um, And it immediately becomes multicultural, multiracial in Mm -hmm. an instant. And then it's just the same thing all over again. There's something about the move of spirit. And, you know, with our kingdom theology, what they're experiencing was heaven touching earth. And and heaven is every tribe,
2: every tongue, every nation. So you just just see it. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, so two things. So two things. I I hear, uh, you know... um, Diversity and equality, kind of things, like Aaron was talking about, and then I hear missions, you know, global missions. I mean, those are those are two massive things. So when heaven touches earth, those are two things that happen. Well, let me tell you about the missions part of it. I mean, uh, there's a story
1: that you know I got tuned into because it's based in Chicago where I live. But there were somebody from Chicago went to Azusa Street, gets filled up, they come back, they start one of these prayer meetings in Chicago. And different people start getting touched in Chicago. And there were a couple of women from Chicago that were going to this prayer meeting in Chicago and one one night they get this prophetic word. And it's and the word was, You're supposed to go to Para. You're supposed to go to Para. Well, they had no idea where Parra was <laughs> yeah. or what Para is. So, you know, they and of course there was no uh, WikiLeaks at that point in time, <laughs> they had to go to the public library and find a gazetteer and look up Para, and they found out that Para is a district in the north east area, Amazonian area of Brazil. It's like yeah. a, a district in Brazil. And so these two ladies are probably, like, how in the world are we gonna get to Para? Like, is this really the Lord? Like, you uh-huh. know, we're just a couple of ladies here. Like, sure, what's the deal? And they're going to, the, and they go to the pyramid. Somebody else comes up, a different person, gives them a prophetic word. Like, you're supposed to go to Para, and if you go to New York City on thus and so date, no way, and you go to this intersection at this time of day, somebody will meet you there with your tickets.
0: That's imminently testable.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They get on the train, they go to New York on the day that's required, they go to the intersection at the time it's required, and some guy comes up to them and says, Are you the two women going to Para? And they said, Yes, we are. And they say, Here's your tickets, one way tickets to Para. Mm. And they get on the boat, and off they went to Para. And those two women started a movement. In Pará, that ultimately, it came to something like five thousand churches mm. all over that area. It became a whole like big denomination in Pará, and the thing is, that kind of experience was multiplied mm-hmm. over.
2: And over and over and over again. And just something to that, because let me just let me back up for just a second. So growing up, you know, I it was kind of inferred in, in circles I was in. So I grew up with Southern Baptist and had just so many great things coming out of that, right? Uh, love of the Word of God. But a lot of the Holy Spirit stuff was kind of foreign to us. And... Um, Specifically, you know, somebody talked about speaking in tongues or prophetic words or things of that nature. You know, a lot of people I know would get really just antsy and say, ah, you got to be careful that kind of stuff. And so when we go back and look at this history and the stuff you're describing with Seymour and Azusa Street and all of these things... uh, a lot of people I know growing up would have said something like, well, great, but I mean, are they just looking for an experience? But when I hear these stories, the beautiful thing for me is, yeah, there was incredible experience and renewal and all these kinds of things that took place in individuals' lives, but it had massive ramifications. And I know you're probably going to get there, but just to be clear, what happened out of Azusa Street, not only worldwide, but it was one of the greatest movements in all of church history, maybe the greatest, is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the thing about it is is that it's it spread very quickly
1: all over the world.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And, I mean, jumping far, far ahead, right now, or let's say 2000, 100 years later, you know, which would actually be 2004, they counted something like, at minimum, 600 million people were a part of this movement. Mm-hmm. Nothing
0: has ever happened to that kind of mm-hmm. degree. Not, in not just in numbers, churches. not just in numbers, but in percentage of population, because sometimes people hear those big numbers and go, "Well there's billions more people on earth," but in terms of percentage of population, population? that that dwarfs even what happened in the first 300 years of yeah. church history in fact
1: ab- interestingly, absolutely a poll I saw just within the last three months they show all these churches declining in numbers mm. but there's one that's still going up Mm.
2: and it's it's the pentecostal charismatic movement is still increasing Mm -hmm. so again just to to go back i mean yeah this is not just about signs and wonders although but those things were catalytic for allowing whole groups of people that had not been exposed to the gospel of jesus christ to to become christians to be disciples and i mean so the ramifications of these signs and wonders Was huge, and I I remember when I first started hearing those stories. You know, coming from the background I came into, and then hearing this stuff, it was like, "Wow, this, this, there's, there's a reason. There are reasons, plural, for why God works in these ways."
1: Mm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, It's it's very interesting that uh, you know. uh, It, it, I think because of William Seymour's initial approach, it did spread out very quickly. A lot of just ordinary people that are at, at, at this point in time nameless
3: mm-hmm.
1: like these two ladies from Chicago just went wherever mm-hmm. you know it kind of reminds me of the Moravian outpouring 300 years previous yeah. know, where a small group of people on the run the Holy Spirit falls on them they experience this incredible renewal and repentance and reconciliation of relationships. They start this prayer meeting that goes day and night mm. for a 100 years, but the next thing that happens after all that the Holy Spirit starts speaking to them about going to the forgotten people of the world. Mm -hmm. And they became the first people to send people to the African slaves in the Caribbean and the first people to send people to the indigenous peoples of North America and so on. It's sort of like always the Holy Spirit, if he gets his way, (laughs) he like heals us up, fills us up, puts power in us, and then he sends us. Sends us out. He sends us out. And he's yeah. going to send us where? To the forgotten people, the missing mm. people, the you know, the hungry people. Mm. You know, uh, that's what he does. Yeah. And so that's what happened in Azusa Street.
3: Yeah.
1: So, um, after about three or four years, the thing got so big that it became. Uh, you started getting sort of normal. You had to institutionalize, mm-hmm. and when you started institutionalizing. Um, there's power dynamics, mm-hmm. uh, so you know they, they, they. Most of these Pentecostals either their home church would go completely Pentecostal, and mm-hmm. some of them did, or they'd be thrown out, and the Holiness mm-hmm. movement basically split, and mm-hmm. so some of them would like Church of God in Christ would just go completely whole hog Pentecostal <laughs> and others like the Nazarenes like no way Jose we're not doing any of that stuff <laughs> and then you know a bunch of other people got thrown out so there's a there's a kind of a sorting and then they had to start lots of new churches so you had a bunch of denominations uh, that started getting organized to kind of because you have to deal with all these churches that you got. All of a sudden, mm. you know, we're, we're not just talking about a prayer meeting in Azusa Street. Now, mm. now we've got, you know, a thousand churches across America. What are we mm. going to do with all these churches?
2: And so forgive me, this first thing that you've described, so starting in the early 1900s, that was known as first wave. Is that right? Yeah, that's called the first wave. Okay. Which won't make sense till we get to the second wave. Okay. Okay. I was just making sure that I understood. Yeah. The
1: the thing about it was, when they started organizing institutionally, they, they had black bishops. And the white pastors couldn't tolerate being under black bishops. So, they split on racial lines, and the white guys got together, and they formed what we now know as the Assemblies of God.
2: Wow, <laughs> little 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 bitty denomination, right? A
1: little de- bitty
2: denomination. And just just side note, I mean, people that go to our church know that I go to a lot of different African countries. I mean, just everywhere I go, there, it seems like I can be in the middle of nowhere, and there's a random assemblies of God. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: They're all over the
2: world. And, and so that would assemblies of God would have officially started right around what what time? 1923. Something okay, so so twenty to thirty and, years yeah, after after mm. you know, so it
1: started splitting on racial lines eventually. Mm-hmm. When when it wasn't just a prayer meeting anymore, mm. but when it started becoming you know institutions and power relationships, you know, and the idea of like you know maybe the bishop might, might not be might be a different color skin than you, that became a problem. Mm. Um. So, um, you kind of ended up with black Pentecostals and white Pentecostals. The funny thing is, most of the white Pentecostal churches sang all the same songs that they were singing over in the black churches. Mm-hmm. Most of the music was coming out of the black experience,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and, you know, I, I've gotten into gospel, old gospel music and discovered mm-hmm. that nearly every song that I grew up singing in the Assemblies of God was written
0: by Mm -hmm. Out of black churches, (laughs) nobody ever told me that when I was course.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Reminds
0: me of something you said earlier about uh, our history, (laughs) and we edit it a little bit as we go. We
1: edited versions of history. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, Yeah.
1: Um, and it has been true in all the Pentecostal churches from Azusa Street that everything was wide open to women. So that the whole issue of like what what women can do and not do was never an issue in any corner of Pentecostalism. Mm. It's always been if the Spirit leads you, you do it.
0: Mm. You know, mm. never never been an issue. And initially, race wasn't so much of an issue, but it became it became an issue. It kind of came back.
1: They had an opportunity mm. to do something
0: really radical. I don't I don't know if they just could have been if they just weren't ready for it mm-hmm. at that point in time. It gives me hope for the next wave. You know, we're in a different place. We're in a different place. And maybe it could be marked by that Something, time. something like that. So,
1: now, the, the thing that's important to understand is that all of this is happening in a very confined subculture. It's all happening on the wrong side of the tracks. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's basically a bunch of... Latinos, blacks, and poor whites Mm. that are all experiencing this thing and being a part of this and then taking it to the rest of the world where that's not so much of an issue. Mm. Um, But not touching the rest of America at all. Mm -hmm. So John, they became, as they moved into the 50s and 60s, you started seeing most of these Pentecostal churches becoming much more middle class Mm-hmm. A lot more wealthier, building bigger churches and all that kind of thing. But it took like thirty, forty years yeah. Yeah. of for that to happen, of development. Mm-hmm. But it never touched any part of the outside the initial sort of holiness context. It didn't mm-hmm. didn't spread mm-hmm. outside of that. Um uh, very big spread overseas, uh as well as in the States. Mm-hmm. Then um In 1962, there was an Episcopalian priest named Dennis Bennett who was pastoring in in Van Nuys, California, which is like a a wealthy suburb of Los Angeles, or at least it was at the time. And somehow he had gotten a hold of a book by a Pentecostal pastor named uh, David Wilkerson a book called Crossing the Switchblade about his ministry to uh, um, heroin addicts in New York City and uh, as a result of that book Dennis Bennett had his own experience with the Holy Spirit and ends up speaking in tongues.
0: Yeah, if I remember correctly, that book kind of goes through a pretty detailed explanation of this is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. This is yep, it's all in it's that ongoing book. thing. Yeah, it lays it out in a very sort of accessible way. So it's a very pivotal book, crossing the switch
1: yeah. <laughs> A lot of people have forgotten about it. It's mostly a story about how God led this nowhere. Pastor from the middle of nowhere, who's a nobody, to do what anybody in their right mind would think was ridiculous—to go into the center of New York City and minister to Mm -hmm. the street gangs that are dealing in heroin, Mm -hmm. and uh, which was the big drug of the Mm -hmm.
3: time—and
1: but you know, God used him, and uh, so then. Dennis Bennett has this experience mm. and he gets up on Sunday morning in his <laughs> Episcopal church and of course, you have to understand if you think the Methodists are establishment
3: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
1: the Episcopalians are like Ultra establishment, <laughs> like that, is the pinnacle of American establishment.
2: And money, I mean, uh, money is Episcopalians, Episcopalians and the Unitarians, yeah the, laborers, it, that's, yeah, the safe place to go if you have money and don't want to rub shoulders with people that might be unseemly in society. Exactly, you right. too hard, <laughs> it's definitely the you know, it it's the
1: complete opposite mm-hmm. kind of extreme of you know, culturally and mm-hmm. everything. So here's this guy. In Los Angeles, rich sower gets up in his church and says, "I had this experience with the Holy Spirit in my spoken tongues." Mm. The next week, they got together and fired him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not surprising. It's really not. I didn't know how that. I didn't know that story, and I was like, "I hope that's not how this ends," but that's probably how it ends. <laughs> yeah, they fired him. Mm.
1: Um, but it's interesting that it happened with somebody in Los Angeles again. Mm-hmm. So, the Episcopal Church, of course, being the the way that they are structured, because this guy's ordained, he's an he's an official mm. priest, mm. they have to put him somewhere. Okay? They can't he just can't stay unfi he can't just stay fired. They have to like put him somewhere. So it's sort of like, what are we gonna do with this guy? <laughs> And so there's a dying congregation up in Seattle area called St. Luke's mm. that's down to its last breath. So they're <laughs> like, let's send him up there, and then hopefully we'll never hear from him again. That will be the end of it.
0: But but now we have that needed element of an outcast. <laughs> that, <laughs> okay, continue. <laughs> Here
1: we go again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm. So he goes up to St. Luke's, and... Because it's like a tiny little congregation that's on its last legs, he can do whatever he wants. Mm. So he just goes for it and just starts teaching people to be get filled with the Holy Spirit and have encounters with Jesus and, you know, prophesy and speak in tongues. And that the thing starts exploding. The church, like, grows. The next thing they know, like, this church is overflowing. People are mm. standing in the street trying to get inside the church for the church services. Mm. So he writes a book. About what happened, called Mm. nine o'clock in the morning. Mm. And that book goes all over the world. And all of a sudden, you've got all kinds of not just Episcopalians, but other mainline denominations that we
0: would think Mm. of as mainline, you know, established, respectable Mm. groups. And a book that's been written by an educated white man.
1: By an educated Mm. white man who's an Episcopalian. Mm. um, All of a sudden are getting into this, you know, we can get the Holy Spirit to it. We can experience this stuff for ourselves. And so you've got Episcopalians and Disciples of Christ, and you've got uh, some Methodists and Lutherans, lots of Mm. Lutherans, all start Mm. getting in to this thing and that's what they call the second wave because mm-hmm. it's like a, there's this new outpouring that's reaching a whole new segment of the church mm-hmm. that had never been touched before mm-hmm. so that starts in 1962 probably really picks up steam in 64 mm-hmm. or 65 it's really starting to happen and you know, just one little backdrop. You know, the U. This in the U.S. as a whole, we're going through Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement, mm. and the country's in a really
0: painful place, mm. a really difficult time period. Yeah, but crisis brings renewal, right? There's there's yes. opportunity built into that. Always, openness that wouldn't Always, always, crisis. Mm.
1: People always say they want revival, sort of like, well, are you ready to? You pay the know money? what comes first? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What comes What comes before? Uh huh. So so that's starting to spread around. And then there's a Roman Catholic university called Duquesne University that has a a youth group that Mm. meets on campus that are hungry for something Mm. more. And they decide to go on retreat, Mm. which, of course, is a Catholic concept, on retreat. And... They went get this to this the location
0: of the Holy Spirit Missionary Sisters. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, the Holy Spirit Missionary Sisters, was that connected with the AG and the Azusa Street? No, they were just they just like that combination of words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I there mean there might hung-
1: have been a history to it. There were hungry people again, but there's hungry people again, people again on and they're going to this place with, mm-hmm. that labels itself Holy Spirit Missionary. Something. Yes, <laughs> I see. And they also had read Crossing the Switchblade before they go on this retreat, so mm-hmm. they're all primed and ready to go. Mm-hmm. And on this retreat, the Holy Spirit falls, and all these Roman Catholics.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: start speaking in tongues and experiencing all this thing
3: mm-hmm.
1: now and again it was like a spark in a pool of gasoline mm-hmm. it was just like ready to go mm-hmm. the thing just explodes and the next thing you know there's there's like you know and, and of course they're, they're already kind of they're aware of what's going on with the Episcopalian so there's a mm-hmm. little bit of the dynamic of well, if it's all right for the Episcopalians, <laughs> then it must be all right for us. Yeah, that's great, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Let's have a go.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, which was a real that forced a major rethink theologically for mm. your classic Pentecostal denominations. Because I remember growing up. We thought maybe the Baptists were saved, at least some of them. We're pretty sure Billy Graham was saved. But we weren't so sure about any of those other people. Definitely not the Episcopalians with their smoking and drinking. Definitely not the Catholics with the Pope. You know, they weren't saved. And then all of a sudden, all these people are like filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And we're like Peter and Cornelius saying, Well, Yes. (laughs) 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 Yes, huh. <laughs> 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 Maybe we were wrong, <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. we were wrong about that, <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: yeah, and once again, big barriers and big walls started big
1: walls start yeah, coming, coming down coming down ball, yeah. all
2: of a sudden started realizing mm-hmm. and and correct me if I'm wrong, and I may be getting up way off here, but was Pope Francis not a part of that? Have I not read that somewhere? He was, and probably in some ways still is. Hmm. really
1: interesting Very interesting. so pretty soon you've got giant catholic charismatic prayer meetings hmm. going on all across the country and I mean it was huge hmm. and was reaching not just people but priests and you know uh, religious leaders and even bishops
3: hmm.
1: and I remember when in 1970 I was yeah, it would have been probably 71. In 1971, there was a big Catholic charismatic prayer meeting up in Minneapolis-St. Paul that used to happen on Thursday nights, and I would go up there sometimes to mm-hmm. go to this prayer meeting. And you go into this gymnasium,
3: mm-hmm.
1: absolutely crammed <laughs> every possible space filled mm-hmm. with people. There would be like two, 3,000 people in this room.
0: For a prayer meeting.
1: For a prayer meeting. Yes, and there's like uncountable numbers of you know priests in their mm. thing and nuns wow. in their habits and just mm. and all kinds of catholic people and almost no preaching mm. like i don't remember any preaching happening there but they would just start with simple worship somebody on a guitar to get up and they'd sing some songs and most of the songs were scripture songs mm. in those days you know just songs scriptures put to music. And they'd be singing a little bit. And there's all there would be this sense of expectancy in the air, sort of like we're waiting for something to happen. Mm -hmm. They're they're all waiting for something to happen. Mm -hmm. And we're like singing, but we're really just waiting (laughs) for something to happen. You're just waiting with music. You're waiting with music, basically. You're waiting. Yeah. And then there'd come this moment, like there'd be a pause From some other part, not from the front, but from some corner of the mm. room or some back of the room, there'd be like a rumble mm. and a hum. And the next thing you know, the whole room, it's just like a wave going across the room. Mm. Whole room starts chanting huh. in basically in tongues. Wow. Um, and people harmonizing, and you know, there's wow. music, and it's completely utterly a hundred percent spontaneous. It's not wow. following anybody at the front. It's and there's power in it. It's like uh. you there's power. People are falling it down on their knees. People like a, are doubling like flash over and, and, no planning. <laughs> and <laughs> doubling over and sobbing in their chairs uh. and you know I mean it was an unbelievable kind of experience. Like you when know, when people try to duplicate it now, it's always frustrating to mm. me because it feels like Oh, you have no idea,
0: right? Right. This was different. <laughs> this this was different. Mm-hmm. It was so so powerful. Mm-hmm.
3: When the interesting thing is that you know
1: it wasn't long. We had bishops like the like the guy who's now the pope, who were also became a part of these things. And it wasn't very long before there were Orthodox Christians in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Who also started Germany, because they're they're responsible if the Catholics can do it, we can do it. <laughs> sure. And I don't know if you've been in an Orthodox church, but they make a Catholic church look Protestant. <laughs> 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 you know. But the next thing you know, you've got uh, you've got these Orthodox churches ministering in the power of the Spirit and experiencing mm. all of these signs and wonders this way. And a tremendous example is a church you can see videos of today called the Cave Church. It's a Coptic mm. Orthodox Church in Cairo, Egypt. Wow. It has something like 10,000 people that come there. Wow! It ministers to the people in Garbage City, mm. which is the people who bake their living by picking up the garbage of the city and sorting it in the bottom of the house. They're like the the lowest of the low, which is why they can get away with uh, being there in a Muslim country, mm. because they're only ministering to people nobody cares about. Yeah, they don't have any power. They have no power. So they're not threatening. You know, they're yeah. ministering not in a building but in a cave, and mm. and it's unbelievable. Mm. And once again, it's outcasts. <laughs> it's outcasts. At the bottom so, of the barrel. The interesting so thing is now what happened with William Seymour. Back in, you know, what started with him, sitting outside the open window, Mm. is now being experienced by 70,000 people gathered in St. Peter's Mm. in Rome Mm. in
0: 1973. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's incredible. Well, again, I, just, it's a, I keep saying the same things, but it's just walls coming down and barriers are being removed and the Holy Spirit, the work of God unifying people who otherwise would never be on the same page. Yeah, right. And it's, it's like all the way through here, the interesting thing
1: is so much of the essentials of it are Holy Spirit inspired and not centered on any person. Mm. It's not person centered. Mm-hmm. And yeah. anytime it became person-centered, it ended up—that's when it goes off the rails. Goes off the rails. Mm. So that affected a huge number, a huge number of the Christians in the world. Except none of your conservative evangelicals, none of your Baptists, uh-huh. not them, <laughs> because they are stumbled by the lack of emphasis on the Word of God and the preaching. Mm. the the basic Pentecostal theology which still goes through all of it there's a second work of grace called baptism in the spirit and the evidence of it is speaking in tongues and that conservative evangelicals just couldn't buy that because they would say you know baptism in the spirit is when you get saved Mm -hmm. because baptism means initiation that means beginning that's where you start they didn't and so the interesting thing is that we get to the 70s, and that launches the Jesus Movement out of a Pentecostal framework. Mm-hmm. And the Jesus Movement is primarily Pentecostal in nature. It's like the final spread of this to a bunch of young people. And now we're third wave now, right? Not, not quite yet. Not quite yet. Okay, I got ahead of you. Sorry. <laughs> it's just about to happen because it starts with Calvary Chapel, which, was a, which originally was in the Sinners of God Church. Mm. When they become independent, because Chuck Smith wanted to, he wanted to get away from sort of the stigma of being a Pentecostal, mm. which still carried a, a fair amount of stigma. Which was uneducated or yeah, yeah, yeah. none of. Okay. I don't know if that's his real motivations, but it was in the water. It was probably in the water, and he he'd been in the assemblies and then left, and had a small Pentecostal type church. And but he welcomed all the hippies that started getting saved instead of all like many other churches keeping them out. Mm. And so this church exploded. and turned into a mega church almost overnight. And that spread again, starting in Southern California. Jesus mm-hmm. starting in Southern California. And one of the churches that got started was Calvary Chapel, Yorba Linda, mm-hmm. which was led by John Wimber. Mm-hmm. And then John was the one who... He, the thing is, John had been at Fuller in the Institute of uh, Church Growth. Mm-hmm. And he had been exposed to the teachings of George Ladd. Mm-hmm. And it had occurred to him that... If you took Ladd's theology, you could jettison dispensationalism entirely, Mm -hmm. which was the underpinning of Pentecostal viewpoints, Mm -hmm. and have a completely different theological framework. Mm -hmm. And then you add to that a sort of infusion of Quakerism, Mm -hmm. where it's all about the Holy Spirit can move anytime, and there's many fillings and awakenings with the Spirit, not just one. And voila, that removed all the barriers for conservative evangelicals. All of a sudden, we don't have to have
0: this Pentecostal theology. We can have a different theology. Yeah. That and, and just for those who are listening who might not have followed that, that's the kingdom theology that we talk about all the time in the vineyard. And John Wimber, of course, the founder of the vineyard. Right. So the genius of
1: John Wimber was putting all this experience uh-huh. thing that we'd inherited sort of from this move of God that started with William Seymour mm. with a new kind of theology. Yes. Mm. And that opened the door for all the Baptists and conservative evangelicals mm. and all of a sudden, Wemmer's doing these conferences and it's filled with all these Baptist pastors. The, the last ones. The last ones. Fascinating. All these Baptists and other conservative mm-hmm. evangelicals and many of them of course ended up in the Vineyard. Mm. And
0: that's what they call the third wave. I see. Yeah. So it was, I mean, that's really why I entered the vineyard is I was raised Pentecostal, loved so much of it. It was such a good upbringing. It was right and good. And yet there wasn't really significant theological moorings to go underneath what I knew to be true about the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I didn't know. I couldn't find that until I found the vineyard, and boy, did it all click. It all clicks. Yeah. Well, and
2: I wanted to say the same thing I came like like Aaron. I came from you know the other side a little bit. You know, strong value of the Word of God, but really, when I you know, I would say there was a void at least in my understanding of the Holy Spirit. And so, yeah, I mean, putting putting those two things together, and then hearing Kingdom theology, it really just. I remember the first time I really dove into kingdom theology and Lad, and how Wimber taught, how Aaron at our local church taught. And I thought, man, I'm reading the Bible in a way I never had before, and it just came alive. It It just just, comes alive. It's mm -hmm. like like it was yesterday.
1: Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And you know, the interesting thing, too, is in the vineyard, is the vineyard kind of was an opportunity to correct the balance a little bit Mm -hmm. that had happened. Uh, an imbalance that had happened in the charismatic movement, that second wave Mm. back to sort of a more sort of even emphasis
0: on the word of God and the spirit of God Mm. uh, yeah we've been been talking about these moves in exclusively glowing terms because it was a remarkable outpouring of God, but it's not as if our enemy just stopped trying at that point And there were there were Other imbalances that needed to be corrected. There needed, yeah. And so there was there was a specific need for what the vineyard brought to the table in yeah. Wimber and led
1: I mean, what I'd want to say to people is like, in all of this, if you dig a little bit deeper, if there was time, hmm. there's a lot of mess. There's a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of poorly motivated people. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people who crashed and burned Um, but the bigger picture
3: Mm.
1: is that God took something out of nowhere with a nobody Mm -hmm. who was hungry for God
3: Mm.
1: and willing to do whatever it took Mm. and turned it into something that is like the biggest thing that's ever happened Mm. in the history of the church and that has literally transformed Every part of the church, all part. over the
2: world, and so, ma- and so many people don't even know this story. Like what you're sharing today, I, I had not heard this story at least uh, to the depth until I listened to uh, you know a, a church history class the, that the vineyard you, roots thing yeah. yeah that you did and also just one other thing I wanted to point out and then I don't want to take you off track of what you're saying because you're on a roll and it's, it's beautiful but um I think one thing that I love about the vineyard uh, not that we're the best tribe or whatever but I just love that we look at jesus's example of both the proclamation and the demonstration of the work of the kingdom Um, A lot of tribes, and let's just say in North America, uh, they're going to be heavy on the word and proclamation. That's a good thing, and we should value that. And others are all about the demonstration, but often leave out the word or at least don't put as high a value as they should on the word. And and we really try to do both. Absolutely. Mm So keep going with what you're ripping. <laughs> where, where we?
0: Well, I, well I, we're probably pushing on time just a little bit, and, and as we're heading off to the next thing soon, Steve. But I just wonder what you would say um, about the moment we're in now, um, and, and I, I'll just tell you quickly that the, kind of where my mind has been has been going again and again as you've been sharing is the need for hunger for humility and for perhaps the desperation of being an outcast and what i've seen is and we've talked about a lot in the life of our church is the collapse of christendom um and and now and we're in the bible Belt. that happened quicker in chicago than it did in east Tennessee. <laughs> but on more and more issues uh we're in the minority you know and we're feeling that shift and just a little bit of and i think it's overstated a lot of times, but we're starting to get waves of, oh, am I an outcast? And I've seen people really, really grieving that and losing a sense of hope and expectation because of it. But what I hear you saying is like, or maybe that's the missing ingredient for the next thing. What would you say about that? Amen. (laughs)
1: Like you know I travel all over the world and there's a sense that God was wanting to do something that something's coming
3: mm.
1: but uh, I don't think we have the hunger
3: yet mm.
1: it's starting to build a little bit mm-hmm. but uh, you know I think the the hunger con- connected with the humility the willingness to be the outcast mm-hmm. To be like Moses, mm. who despised the status and the treasures of Egypt, to mm-hmm. suffer disgrace with the people of God.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's the way to the Promised Land. Mm. Yeah,
3: and,
0: and the word also calls him the most humble man who ever lived. The most humble man ever. ever lived. So, like,
1: mm. we we need to kind of we need we need to get that mm. and. Uh, in some places I've been in other parts of the world the hunger is stronger Mm -hmm. and uh, partly I think because the sense of being an outcast has been more real longer yes Yeah. and right now when I come back to the states it does feel like people are still grieving the loss of power and the loss of respectability Mm -hmm. and their hearts are cold Mm -hmm. and they're, they're not
0: desperate Mm -hmm. They're not hungry. Mm -hmm. And I'm praying for desperate people. Yeah. 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 Lord, make us hungry and make us humble. Yeah. Mm. That makes me hopeful. I'm eager to see what God does next. I think I'll say this. I don't, I don't know the future. I I don't suppose any of us do, uh, but I'm starting to see what I want to say is like maybe the very first fruits of people, stepping away from the bitterness of loss as far as the power and the control and starting to. I feel the same way. Like, it feels like we're just getting there on the hunger side. Um, I remember, I remember times even, and, you know, my experience being much more limited, but in the 90s, where there there was a hunger in the '90s that's different than the hunger we experienced now, yeah. but there wasn't that sort of outcast status. No, um, and I'm, so maybe the maybe just maybe we're set for those those two things to collide again, and God to do something.
1: And in the whole history of the church, the church has always been at its best mm. as outcasts, yeah, on the outside edges,
0: mm. hanging out with the unwanted and the forgotten. Mm. Yeah. And if we're going to join God in the renewal of all things, then we need to shift our focus to those very same people too. Yep. Yeah see what the father's doing and joining him in it and turns out looking after the outcast <laughs> and the marginalized is what he's actually always been doing the <laughs> exactly <laughs> whole time. exactly uh, steve thank you so much this has been really really helpful great thanks yeah you just have a gift for this sorry about the compliment but you have a gift for this <laughs> to carry people to carry a narrative across a, a, and, yeah. and catch the broad swipes the, the broad sweeps well, i of love really the story helpful. it's a great it's a great story it's a story about god and mm-hmm. So. Good. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.